but irregularly, like some strange and persistent messenger who will not give up until the message has been received. I decide to pay attention to what is happening in my life and the world when the image appears. I discover that the image does not come more frequently when things in the world seemed to be falling apart at an accelerated rate. The tragic events of September the 11th, the increased violence in the Middle East, Stories of poverty and injustice within my own community all touch me deeply, but they do not alter how often or how vividly the image comes to me as I drift off to sleep. Neither does it seem to come with increased frequency when things in my own life are not going well. Sometimes the image appears when everything seems to be working out the way I want it to or think it should. After years of being unable to banish the image, I finally decide to listen to what it has to tell me to allow and be with the feelings that come when I simply stay with it. And I am flooded with a level of exhaustion that forces me to lie down on the bedroom floor next to my meditation cushion. The woman with her hands, a symbol of doing, severed, says to me silently but emphatically, I quit. I lie on the floor and consider the white plaster of the ceiling, allowing the feelings of failure to come. I stay with the knowledge of how frequently I am not fully present despite my intentions and my practice of meditation and prayer. I am frustrated at learning primarily in hindsight. During my contemplative meditation, I can see clearly that I could have remained calm and compassionate when the woman from the insurance company informed me that my driving rating has been lowered and my premiums upped despite the fact that I did not make the claim or the police report that someone has apparently inserted into my file. But this insight was not available, did not guide me when I was speaking directly to her, and she refused to correct the error. I'm demoralized by how often I still find myself overtired from doing too much, despite my efforts to increase my awareness of my own limitations by diligently doing my daily practice and conscientiously avoiding those things I know speed me up and make it harder to stay connected with myself and others. Caffeine, TV, junk food. Over and over I resolve to slow down, and I do. I reorganize, take on less, let go of things that do not need to be done. But the eyes of the woman in the image, my eyes, mirror the sense of futility that is growing within me, question the reason for all this effort, point to a hopelessness I just barely outrun each day. Her weary face dares to ask the question, why? Why do any of it? Why not simply forget about being awake? Why not just find a really good pharmaceutical product that will allow me to continue to function in the world and be a happy carrot? What's the point of all this effort, all this diligent trying that seems to fail more often than it succeeds in creating awareness? This is a story of my quest to hear and heed the call at the center of my life, the call to live the meaning, the why, at the center of all of our lives. It is an invitation to you to turn your attention to the call at the center of your life, so that together we might begin to live consciously who and what we are, and in so doing alleviate suffering in our lives and in the world, and embody the deep happiness that is our birthright. The call is that consistent tug we feel at the center of our lives to do more than just continue, to know and fulfill the meaning of our lives. The call is always there, whispering in the soft places of our bodies and hearts, in the longing that reminds us what we ache for at the deepest level. A year ago, a dear friend, celebrating the changes in my work life, 
the steady book sales and opportunities to speak to different groups said, Oh, isn't it wonderful? It's what you always wanted, and it's all coming true. Later that night, at home in my bed, grateful for the opportunities that have come into my life, but aware that these were never goals I consciously held or pursued, I see again the image of myself with severed hands, and I whisper into the darkness, All I ever wanted was God. I am neither a priest nor a theologian, neither a devotee of nor a spokesperson for any particular spiritual tradition or path. I am an ordinary woman with an extraordinary hunger to live with an awareness of the sacred mystery, the beloved, God, at the center of my life, and to learn from this presence who I am and why I am here. Speaking to me through what I long for, the call of that which is both within and larger than myself, has guided me to an understanding of how I can live that longing, not by trying to change myself, but by unfolding, by becoming who I already am at the deepest level of my being. But with this comprehension of what I must do, the call continues to come to me as an image of myself with tired eyes and severed hands, questioning why I seek to embody this understanding when it is clear how infrequently my essential nature guides my actions. How often fear still shapes and sometimes determines what I do. It tells me that something is off, missing, but I have not given up. I am willing to do whatever it takes to know and live the meaning in my life. I am convinced that I have to and am able to learn to do it differently. And I am wrong. Not knowing I am wrong, in the summer of 2002, I decide to go into the wilderness alone to do a 40-day vision quest, a ceremonial time of fasting, praying, and deep listening found in different forms in many spiritual traditions. Over the past 18 years, I have done eight personal vision quests, some for one to four nights and one for 22 days and nights. I am feeling strong, prepared, and cautiously optimistic. I am lying face down in the dirt and pine needles, waiting for the sharp pains in my belly to soften and ebb away. For the third time in as many hours, I have vomited onto the ground the small sips of water I keep swallowing in an effort to stay hydrated. It has been 24 hours since I have been able to keep anything, including water, down. Trying to eat small bites of an apple hours before was like trying to swallow razor blades. I can feel the rapid fluttering of my heartbeat behind the steady throbbing in my head. When I roll over the whole world... A dizzying swirl of rocks and ground and leaves and sky rolls with me and keeps on rolling even when I have stopped. It takes several minutes for my view of the gray sky above the tops of the trees that surround me to stabilize. The nausea and aching muscles have made sleeping difficult. I have been awake for almost 48 hours. I have been alone in the wilderness for six days. Because I am planning to stay for 40 days, I am not fasting continuously. Half of the time I am eating one light meal per day of a quarter cup of rice, one vegetable protein patty, and one apple. The other half of the time, for three-day periods, I am water fasting. Feeling ill took me by surprise on day four, after only eight hours of water fasting. The severity and suddenness of my symptoms remain a mystery. I have fasted many times for much longer periods with much less preparation and experienced no physical repercussions. Several years earlier, I water-fasted during a 22-day quest with no ill effects. Having had chronic fatigue syndrome many years ago, I generally keep a pretty close watch on my overall health 
and can anticipate and usually avoid any major immune system crashes by resting and using herbs and supplements. I'd arrived for this quest rested and healthy. The weather and the animals have been gentle. There is no apparent reason for being so sick. I lie on my back and stare at the clouds, wondering how long I can manage to keep going without water. Constant dizziness makes movement difficult. Purple bruises and welts from staggering into trees and falling to the ground while gathering firewood cover my legs and arms. Having discovered a thermometer in my adventure medical kit, I know I have a low-grade fever of about 100.5 degrees. I can feel tears gathering behind my eyes, but I know crying will make my already pounding headache feel like it's going to explode, so I swallow hard and without any hope of an answer speak out loud. Now what? And I hear a voice, the voice of one of the old women I have seen many times in my dreams and have come to call the grandmothers. The voice says quietly, simply, Go home. I hold my breath, listening for more. Anger flashes through me. Is this a test to see if I'm sincere in my intention to be here for forty days? Are they trying to measure the depth of my desire I have poured into my prayers? Seeing me struggle with physical discomfort, are they testing my resolve, trying to tempt me into giving up? The tears I would not allow as an expression of discouragement come now as outrage, hot on my face. My words are choked out from behind clenched teeth. Don't fuck with me. The voice comes again, slower, sadder, and impossibly softer, a breeze rippling through the maple leaves above me. Oriah, go home. And I break. I roll over and press my face into the earth, sobbing. How can I go home without an answer? I want to know how to do it differently, how to let the love I know is within me guide me when I am tired and impatient and judgmental with those around me. I think of them now, the people I love, my two beautiful sons, Nathan and Brendan, now young men of nineteen and twenty-two, both beginning their studies at university, Jeff, the man I am about to marry, who despite not really understanding what I am doing out here, helped me pack in my supplies and waits for my return. My parents, restraining themselves from expressing their concern for their crazy daughter, who just before her forty-eighth birthday has gone out into the wilderness for six weeks alone. The friends and students who have supported me, the many people who are praying for me. Is telling me to go home the grandmother's way of telling me I simply can't do it? I can't live differently? I can't live fully present with a deep sense of connection to myself and the sacred mystery guiding me all the time? I raise my head off the ground. I'm not going home. I want to know how to do it differently. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes. This last declaration is fierce, desperate. For a few moments there is nothing but the silence of the forest. You can't get there from here, Oriah. What? What you are looking for cannot be bought by ordeal. I sit up slowly, bewildered. I'm not trying to buy anything, am I? There is an element of ordeal in doing a vision quest. The fasting, the solitude, the physical rigors of living outdoors in the wilderness for an extended time in all kinds of weather, the bugs. But these are part of the process I know and trust, part of what has worked in the past to break down my resistance to seeing what I need to see, hearing what I need to hear. I live in a culture that glorifies the easy answer, packages and sells the promise of a quick fix. I am willing to sacrifice comfort for what matters, for what is real. 
What you are looking for cannot be earned or paid for with suffering or hard work. It is a gift, grace. It can only be received. A wave of hopelessness washes through me. I know how to try harder, work longer, suffer through. I'm good at it, and I'm willing to do it. And they are telling me that not only is this not what is required, but that it simply won't work. Try easier. I don't know how to do easy, I whisper, and I don't trust people who do. This is a revelation I realize is true as soon as I say it. I trust others who, like me, trust hard work, assume it is required, dive into it willingly, and do it well. Give me something else to do, anything. But don't ask me to do easier. I don't know how. I don't think I can. There must be something else. I am begging now, desperate to know that the answer to all my questions is not the one thing I truly feel I cannot do. I lie back down defeated, letting the tears slip silently out of the corners of my eyes and run down into my ears. Finally the voice of the grandmother comes again, softly, sadly. You keep fighting with reality, Araya. It's a losing battle. Give it up. It is late in the day. Because the sky is overcast, I cannot tell how close the sun is to setting. Not wanting to get caught in the dark on my way out of the bush, I resolve to wait until morning, reasoning that a good night's sleep may make staying possible or leaving safer. Lying in my small tent later that night, I breathe through the nausea and dizziness, focusing on relaxing into the ache that runs through my arms and legs. I give up hoping for sleep and try to let the darkness be my rest. I continue to be unable to eat or drink anything without vomiting. At first light I sit up and do my morning prayers, asking for help in getting out of the wilderness. Getting into my canoe, I paddle across the lake. Already the air is warm and thick with humidity, the lake a sheet of gray glass under cloudy skies. The dense bush around me is silent, still. I am not pondering the meaning of following the grandmother's directive to go home. I am focused on getting out. Strangely, I feel more stable in the canoe than I do on land. The hike along a trail to the nearby outfitters normally takes about twenty minutes, but each time I take a dozen steps, I have to go down on my hands and knees and wait for my rapidly beating heart to return to normal and for the dizziness and nausea to recede. I want to lie down on the path and wait for someone to find me and carry me out. We have set up a system of signal flags for safety, and I know that sooner or later today someone will come down the path from the outfitters so they can see the flag I have put up on the far side of the lake. Only two things keep me going, the knowledge that it could be twelve more hours before someone comes to check the flag, and the bugs. Every